Well, all right. It's probably 7.35-ish now. 7.36, all right. Well, brothers and sisters, um, those of you that are here in person and those that are online, welcome to Introducing the Confession. Um, this is our deep dive into the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, let me pray for us for our time tonight. Pray for myself especially. Um, and pray that um, God would use our time tonight um, in the confession, but more importantly from his word and through his spirit um, that we might be encouraged and that our affections for him might grow deeper and deeper. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, the saints of Covenant Baptist Church, um, their um, willingness to hear me teach, um, to let me be one of the elders. Father, I thank you for gathering these saints together um, as a body. Um, Father, as we've considered uh, your church the past couple of weeks, um, made this week an extension of that teaching in the next several weeks um, as we consider the sacraments. Um, I pray that um, our appreciation for you gathering saints together in local churches would be, um, would be magnified, that our love for you would be magnified. Um, Father, as we um, read these words that men so many years ago wrote as they considered your scriptures and considered um, the faith delivered to the apostles. I pray that um, you would give us understanding of their words. Um, and as we consider whether to adopt this as our statement of faith for our church, I pray that you would grant us wisdom. Father, let us um, let me be clear tonight. Let, um, let your wisdom come from me. May I faithfully teach your scriptures. My brothers and sisters, listen to you um, eagerly. And um, may we be edified by our time together. We thank you for, for our, our salvation that we have only in your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. So many of us have memorized the Apostles' Creed. It was not written by the apostles themselves, but it is considered to be a faithful summary of their teachings. It was written 300 years after the birth of Christ. It has three sections. The first briefly identifies God the Father. The second recounts the incarnation, crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, God the Son, as well as his promised return to judge the living and the dead. The third section describes the work of God the Spirit. The creed reads, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. 
From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And here's the part that concerns us most, especially tonight. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic, that'll be universal if that gives you the heebie-jeebies, um, the, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Tonight, we will dig into the doctrine of the communion of the saints, an ancient doctrine that has been confessed by the church for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So let's start with a quick review of where we have been in our previous studies. I'm about to say back in February, and you're all going to, oh my gosh, he said brief. Uh, so back in February, we learned that the Second London Confession has four major divisions. Chapters 1 through 6 lay out first principles such as the scriptures, God's nature, his decree, creation, providence, and sin. In the second division, God's covenant is covered in chapters 7 through 20 of the confession. In these chapters, the covenant is defined, and we learn of the covenant servant, Christ the mediator. After discussing the covenant setting of free will, the confession covers the covenant blessings of effectual calling, justification, adoption, and sanctification, and the covenant graces of faith, repentance, perseverance, and assurance. The second division ends with the means of receiving the covenant, God's law and God's gospel. The third division of the confession, chapters 21 through 30, speaks on the freedom and boundaries of God-centered living. The basis of God-centered living is Christian liberty. The principles of God-centered living include chapters on Christian worship, civil government, marriage, and the church. The past two weeks, we've looked at the definition of the church. Tonight, we will look at the fellowship of the church, and then the third division of the confession will conclude with the sacraments of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then as a preview of the last section, the confession itself concludes with two chapters on the world to come, after death and resurrection, and then the last judgment. As we move to focus on chapter 27, we will see that it consists of only two paragraphs. And we also see that the chapter has two divisions. The first paragraph will establish the theological basis for our communion with Christ and our communion with one another. The second paragraph discusses the practical implications of our communion with Christ and one another. So let's read the first paragraph. All saints are united to Jesus Christ their head by his spirit and by faith, although this does not make them one person with him. They have fellowship in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. Since they are united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obligated to carry out these duties, both public and private, in an orderly way to promote their mutual good both in the inner and outer aspects of their lives. So the first thing we see is that all saints are united to Christ, their head by his spirit and by faith. Ironically, the confession does not have a chapter dedicated to union with Christ. But that being said, we have already seen this dear doctrine discussed in several places in the confession. For example, let's turn to chapter 2, 
paragraph 3. It reads, This divine and infinite being consists of three real persons, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three had the same substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence without this essence being divided. The Father is not derived from anyone, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. All three are infinite and without beginning and are therefore only one God who is not to be divided in nature and being. Yet these three are distinguished by several distinctive characteristics and personal relations. And here's why, why we focus on this. This truth of the Trinity is the foundation of all our fellowship with God and of our comforting dependence on Him. Fellowship is a synonym for communion. The Trinity is foundation for our communion with God. And the Trinity is the foundation for the comfort we find in Him. And then in chapter 13, paragraph 2, Check that. Actually, this is chapter 13, paragraph 1. Those who you're united to Christ and effectually called and regenerated have a new heart and a new spirit created, created in them through the power of Christ's death and resurrection. They are also further sanctified, really and personally, through the same power, by His Word and Spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the various evil desires that arise from it are more and more weakened and put to death. At the same time, those called and regenerated are more and more enlivened and strengthened in all saving graces, so that they practice true holiness, without which no one will see the Lord." Notice all the effects of our union with, the Christ, with Christ as related to sanctification. We have a new heart and a new spirit. God the Spirit dwells in us. The dominion of sin is destroyed. Evil desires are weakened and put to death. Because of our union with Christ, we can practice true holiness. Our perseverance is also dependent on, on our union with Christ. Chapter 17 Paragraph 2 reads, This perseverance of the saints does not depend on their own free will, but on the unchangeableness of the decree of election, which flows from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. Listen to this. It is based on the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with Him, the oath of God, the abiding of His Spirit, the seed of God within them, at the nature of the covenant of grace. The certainty and infallibility of their perseverance is based on all these things. So our union with Christ is one of the things essential to our certain and infallible perseverance. Our union with Christ is essential to our fellowship with God, to our dependence on Him, to our sanctification, to our perseverance.
The confession then moves from these precious truths to the correction of an error that existed at the time of its writing. This does not make them one person with him. According to scholars such as James Renahan, the confession is referring to a group called the familist or familist or the family of love. John of Scoff. Uh, apparently they did. So they believed in the quote inner light, end quote, and the birth of Christ in their souls. They rejected the services and sacraments of the churches, but were advised to conform outwardly to the religion of the state. They also appeared to have universalist tendencies, so that. Hindus, Jews, Muslims could all be considered part of Christ and part of his church. The sect disappeared in the 17th century, although some of their beliefs have survived in cults such as Mormonism. We do not become gods when we are united in Christ. We do not achieve deity through our union with Christ. It is a mystical union. As the confession continues, we see that believers have fellowship in Christ's graces. This is a call back to the Redeemer's act of obedience. As we continue our tour of the entire confession, turn to chapter 8. So we're going to start, so we're going to work a lot of our way through this entire chapter briefly, hopefully briefly. All right, so in chapter 8, paragraph 3. The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, united in this way to the divine and the person of the Son, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure. He had in himself all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The Father was pleased to make all fullness dwell in him, so that, being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he was thoroughly qualified to carry out the office of our mediator and guarantor. He did not take this office upon himself, but was called to it by his father, who put all power and judgment in his hand and commanded him to carry them out. All right, let's, let's go to the next, the next paragraph, paragraph four. The Lord Jesus most willingly undertook this office. To discharge it, he was born under the law and perfectly fulfilled it. He also experienced the punishment that we deserved and that we should have endured and suffered. He was made sin and a curse for us. He endured extremely heavy sorrows in his soul and extremely painful sufferings in his body. He was crucified and died and remained in a state of death, yet his body did not decay. On the third day, he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered. In this body, he also descended into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of his father, interceding, he will return to judge men and the angels at the end of the age. Hear the echoes of the Apostles' Creed. And then paragraph five, the Lord Jesus has fully satisfied the justice of God, obtained reconciliation, and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those given to him by the Father. He has accomplished these things by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself which he once for all offered up to God through the eternal spirit. All right. As lovely as this chapter is, we're going to skip to paragraph eight. 
to all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption, he certainly and effectually applies and imparts it. He intercedes for them, unites them to himself by his spirit, and reveals to them in and by his word the mystery of salvation. He persuades them to believe and obey and governs their hearts by his word and spirit. He overcomes all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom, using methods and ways that are perfectly consistent with his wonderful and unsearchable governance. All these things are by free and absolute grace, apart from any condition for obtaining it that is foreseen in them. Notice the phrase, unites them to himself by his spirit. As one commentator or comment, commenter, commentator on the confession is written, everything Christ did and everything he now possesses as a mediator belongs to us. So thus we also share in his sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And let's listen to the proof text cited in the confession. That which we have seen and heard, we, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John 1, 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Philippians 3, 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Romans 6, 5 and 6. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Fellowship, grace upon grace, sharing his sufferings, united with him in a resurrection like his. These are among the glorious benefits of our union to Christ the mediator. The second half of, par of paragraph one sets out the theological basis for our fellowship with one another. We are united in love, which comes with shared gifts, graces, and obligations. So the confession continues, since they are united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces. Let's turn to Ephesians 4, chapter 4, verse 15. Verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We speak the truth in love so that we grow into Christ. He is our head. He joins and holds us together. He equips every joint. He ensures that each part works properly. He makes the body grow. So we speak the truth in love so that the church builds itself up in love. 
Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 12. Verse 7 reads, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Notice the phrase, common good. The Spirit gives us gifts for the good of the church. These gifts are not used in isolation, but among the saints in the church. And now let's go back a little further in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verses 21 through 23. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Here the apostle Paul exhorts the saints in Corinth to make no boast in men. Their bows should be in Christ because they belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Because they are united to Christ, they are united to one another and thus they have no bows to make except in Christ. So in addition to shared gifts, graces, shift, excuse me, shared gifts and graces, believers also share obligations. So the confession continues, because they are unified in love and in gifts and graces, believers are obligated to carry out these duties, both public and private, in an orderly way to promote their mutual good, both in the inner and outer aspects of their lives. First notice that the obligations are to be done in public and private. We perform these duties both in our gathering in the church and throughout the week when we are not gathered. And what are these obligations? Listen to these texts. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11 and 5, 14. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Another one, Romans chapter 1, verse 12. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. First John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and see his, sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In Galatians 6.10, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Build one another up, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all, mutual encouragement, open our hearts to our brother's need, love in deed and truth, do good to everyone. Do good to those who are of the household of faith. 
These are the general obligations of our communion to one another. Paragraph 2 will lay down some practical implications of our communion with one another. It reads, Saints by profession are obligated to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in worshiping God and in performing other spiritual services that promote their mutual edification. They are to aid each other in material things according to their various abilities and needs. They should especially exercise communion in the relationships they have in their families and churches. Yet the rule of the gospel also directs them, as God provides opportunity, to extend their sharing to the whole household of faith, to all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Nevertheless, their communion with one another as saints does not take away or infringe on the title or individual ownership that people have in their goods and possessions. There's a lot there. Um, but, so first we see that the saints by profession are obligated to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in worshiping God and in performing other spiritual services that promote their mutual edification. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Verse, verse 24 and verse 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So a careful reading of this text shows that as the day of the Lord draws near, we are prone to be discouraged. The weight of this world, the sins, our, our own sins, the sins of others um, can cause us to forget about Christ's return. And so um, we are prone to be discouraged. Thus God in his wisdom calls us to gather weekly to worship him and by doing that encourage and edify one another. And so when we gather, we must remember that we are there to, to stir up our fellow saints to love and good deeds. Even our bad singing stirs up brothers and sisters in Christ to love and good deeds. Just our presence. I know that there have been times when um, I've been facing a trial and it probably would be, uh, I've been tempted to not gather and pushed forward and gathered, and it was a great encouragement to me. Um, and so when we gather, you know, we, we sing the word, we pray the word, the word's preached, the word's sung, I may have already said that, uh, and then in the sacraments and the ordinances, we see the, the word, we see the gospel, uh, almost enacted as we eat, eat the bread and drink the cup and see a fellow believer buried in Christ with baptism and raised from the dead. What a reminder 
and encouraging reminder of the gospel when we gather. And that, ver- that verse can also be used in the, the private encouragement as well. It, just, it says to meet together. So you could take that as uh, the gathering, but also just as we, we talk about often, having coffee, having a meal together, doing errands. I love that. I love that verse, those two verses. Those are, those are probably the verses that stick, stick the most with me. All right, so now let's go back a few chapters in Hebrews to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Again, we see our proneness to be discouraged or to fall into sin. The days are evil. Friends get sick. Miscarriages happen. We commit sins. We lie to people. We're not honest with our spouses. We're impatient with our children. We need encouragement from our brothers and sisters in Christ using God's word. We don't want to be hardened. We don't want to see one another hardened. That's the, that's the essence of this communion we have with one another. Um, So the church, our purpose is to proclaim Christ and him crucified. And that's for the world and that's for one another. We, we need to hear that. We need that reminder daily, maybe even more than daily. Um, so we should constantly seek to exhort and encourage one another. We are to promote our mutual edification. All right. The confession then continues and says they are to aid each other in material things according to their various abilities and needs. And so not only do we look to our brothers and sisters in Christ's spiritual needs, we look to their material needs. Um, Acts 11 talks about the church Um, sending relief to the brothers living in Judea. They took up money and they sent them for their relief. 
We see that throughout the, the New Testament. We should, we should be actively seeking to help those around us, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, that that demands or that implies an openness that we share our neediness with one another. But we also share our blessedness from God with one another. And to clarify those, those obligations to, to address material needs... Um, the confession talks about kind of a priority of obligations. So it says they should especially exercise communion in the relationships, relationships they have in their families. And so uh, think of Ephesians 6, 4. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So we, we read that and we think about it and Yes, we don't want to provoke our children to anger. But we want to, what we want to see is that as fathers, as mothers, we have a priority to teach our children about the Lord. That, uh, that doesn't exclude us from teaching others about the Lord, but we need to make sure that that is our priority. And... Um, and similarly, regarding uh, material needs, 1 Timothy 5.8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a weighty, weighty passage. I'll confess that I have, it's, it's the one for my family. I really, I rarely have the opportunity to expand. I'm so concerned about providing for my family. I should probably think about that in my life. Um, but we want to make sure that we instruct our children and that our family is taken care of, that we steward God's resources well. So then the next level of priority is churches. So we've looked at the needs of our children, both spiritual and material and physical. Now we want to look to those that are part of our church. And so uh, a, a critical text for this is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, a very long passage, 14 through 27. If you'll turn there. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. 
If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were in an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Now verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. In verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So we see here that every part of the body is critical to the function of the church. We can't, we can't be, we can't look down on parts of the body and we shouldn't look up unless they're taller. Uh, they are all critical. Christ is the head, so he is more critical. If, if you think of, you know, Highlander, there can, there can only be one, you know. Um, you cut off the head, the body, the body shrivels up. So without Christ, the body can't function. And as we've seen earlier, he supplies the function for the body. And we saw earlier that the Spirit gives manifest, manifestations of the Spirit to each member of the church. And so, believers, we, we're critical to the local church. We play an important part. And this just speaks to what, we say, what we've been saying throughout, that um, an unattached Christian to a church is probably an oxymoron or uh, is a unicorn um, and not the ones that are in the Bible. Uh, so as, we, as we've seen, as we've seen um, we have obligations to one another because we are united in Christ. Because we're united in Christ, we are united in love. As we unite in love, we seek to build the church up in love. And as we do that, we make sure that we are building our families up in love. We're building our local church up in love. So then, and this may be 
we're probably getting like to the most potentially controversial part of this chapter. And I mean, I, I have confidence in our, in our church that this really isn't a big deal. Um, but the, the last portion of paragraph two, two says, yet the rule of the gospel also directs them as God provides opportunity to extend their sharing to the whole household of faith, to all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Nevertheless, their communion with one another as saints does not take away or infringe on the title or individual ownership that people have in their goods and possessions. So, if you, if you take one thing away from this, this section, I want you to hear it. There's no such thing as biblical communism. And John O'Gasp. Uh, and so, you know, and we're going to talk about you know, people will talk about Acts, the Acts church, and how they had everything in common. But if we all recall the story of Ananias and Sapphira, uh, in Acts chapter 5, we know that their sin was lying against the Holy Spirit. No one, was, no one told them you had to sell your property. Um, they decided to sell it and then lie about how much they got for it. And I'm probably not doing communism enough. Well, I'm, I definitely don't want to do communism enough justice. What I should say about communism and socialism as an extension is that those are systems that rely on force to, or the threat of force to obtain the mutual sharing of, if you're really not, it's not really mutual. It's because you don't want to die that you will share, um, share what you've been given. And so also, just as, as, a, as a positive statement, so we, so we read in Acts 5 and 4 about an Ananias and Sapphira, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So on the other side, consider Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And so, one of the exhortations we want to give people, and, uh, you know, I'll say, I, I had a, a prolonged time of unemployment about three years ago. And I was so thankful for my brothers and sisters in Christ that they didn't say, go get your, go get a, you know, go get a job. It was, what are you doing to look for a job? Is there something you could do while you're looking um, so that you can provide for your family? 
And I confess at the time, sometimes that wasn't appreciated. But I now appreciate, I mean, looking back, very appreciative of the encouragement that was to me. So we see in this, in this paragraph a principle, or this, this section, a principle called unforced generosity. Um, and so one of the things that you know, we want to think about, because I think what I've, what I've already said was that we should focus on our family and our churches. But we also talked about, I mean, we, we consider Paul. How did Paul... Uh, how did Paul make a living? He made tents in some places. As, uh, as we see in Philippians, the Philippians generously gave to him for his gospel proclamation. Um, and he encouraged them by, by saying how appreciative he was for their, their generosity. And because of their generosity, um, even members of the Praetorian Guard heard the gospel. Um, and we see that throughout, throughout the New Testament that um, they wanted to see the gospel advance. They didn't just want to stay in Jerusalem. They got driven out. Churches popped up in Galatia, in Corinth, in Ephesus, Thessalonica. And we see, the, we see Christians throughout that time giving, setting, stuff, setting things aside. Um, one of the sources I read was talking about almsgiving during the gathering. Um, that at the beginning of the week, on the Lord's Day, people set aside money to help the poor. And yes, our... Our priority again is those within our church. We have, you know, we have we have different mixes in our church. We have some people that really struggle. You know, they work hard. Everybody works hard, but they haven't been given as much. And we have people that have been given more. And um, you know, as we saw in the widow in the Old Testament, she gave what she had. And that was a blessing for her. So I think with that, I'm going to open the floor for questions or comments.